I was at a conference earlier this year and getting ready to fly home, and I had one of those really early morning flights. And as far as I'm concerned, the fact that those sorts of early morning flights exist is one sign that there is evil in the world. But um, I had to wake up really early, and I, was, I went down to the you know, front desk to check out. And uh, it was one of those hotels that's just right by the airport. So um, there were actually a few of us that were trying to catch this flight. So I wasn't the first person in line. So I'm standing there waiting to check out. And there were multiple TV screens right in my eye line there in that hotel. One of them had sort of the departures and arrivals of the flights coming in and leaving. The other one had CNN on. It was showing the news. But the, the third one, it was clear that, that one of the workers at the hotel had turned on and was watching. And it caught my attention because it was a religious broadcast. It was a televangelist that was preaching, and at the bottom of the screen, there was a little lower third that said that this was uh, this church's stewardship conference. And I knew that we had this U Times 2 series coming up, and it was a series that relates to stewardship, so I thought, well, I'm going to take a minute and watch what this guy has to say. And it took me about two minutes to realize that what I was listening to was a, I guess we would call it a prosperity gospel preacher. Have you ever heard one of these guys, right? Um, He said, you know, the secret to receiving what God wants you to have is believing God wants you to have it. If you believe, then you're going to receive. If you're not receiving, then you're not believing, right? Um, Well, I was agitated enough when I heard that because, gosh, I hate this whole prosperity gospel thing because it has absolutely no basis in the Bible. I always want to talk to these teachers humbly and, and, and just ask, show me where you're seeing this because I'm not seeing this anywhere uh, in the Bible. But this guy was taking it to a whole other level. He said, God wants you to make in a week what you make in a month and God wants you to make in a day what you make in a week and it, you just need to believe. If it's not happening for you, it's because you're not believing. You know, if you want to receive, you need to believe. <clears throat> Boy, it just frustrated me. And I kind of walked out of that hotel sort of aggravated because I thought, here is a group of people sitting in a room listening to a teacher, really trying to engage with what he's saying, but what he's teaching is not the Bible. What he's teaching is not what, 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 what God says. Um, and so as I was sort of leaving with that sort of you know, in, internal aggravation, I'm you know, in, in the little rental car puttering off to the airport, do you ever feel like you sort of get some pushback in your spirit from God? You know, you're sort of mental, your attitude is headed in one direction, and it's almost as though sort of God gently blocks you and says, now wait a minute, you're going in a wrong direction here. God's never spoken to me audibly. But there was a sense in which God was trying to show me, Jonathan, you're so against this prosperity gospel thing, which I am, that the pendulum has swung all the way to the other side, and you think that the blessings I've put in your life is all that I want you to have, right? You're confusing contentment with apathy. You, you think, well, I'm, I'm content with what God's given me, and God's given me these, these blessings, these opportunities, and these resources. Obviously, I have what God wants me to have, elsewise God would give me something else, right? And so it was as though God was saying, are you sure? Are you sure that you have everything that I want you to have? Well, even that question smacks so close to a a sort of teaching that I want to stay as far away from that I can, that it was hard for me to start to engage that. But I did do a little bit of logical thinking through it, and this is kind of my thought process. Um, At first, I, I had to admit, well, God has access to everything, right? The Bible says in Psalms that the earth is the Lord's and everything in it. So God has, there's nothing in this world that God doesn't have access to. Further, I believe that God wants to invest in his children. I believe that God wants to bless his children as much as he possibly can. 
And I start to triangulate those things together, and I think to myself, well, God could trust me with more than he does. God could invest in me more than he does. So then that led me to this question, and, and I'll explain to you in a moment. This is, not a, this is not a question of gratitude or ingratitude. It's just a, a, just a straightforward question about whether or not I'm leaving opportunity on the table, and that is, why doesn't God invest more in me, right? Now, if, if you're kind of from the sort of um, spir- spiritual perspective that I'm sort of from, then that for you may sound like some sort of spiritual greed. Why isn't God blessing me more? This, is, this question really isn't about whether God is doing the right thing or whether, uh, you know, what does God need to do for me? This has a lot more to do with, am I providing God a platform to bless me? Am I giving God room to bless me the way that he wants to bless me? Because if I'm not, then that's a me thing that I need to look at. This is not about whether God is a good God. We know God is a good God. The question is, am I giving God a platform to be as good to me as he would like to be? Right? Now, this is a negative way of asking the question. I'll, I'll grant that. Let's, let's flip it, and let's look at it in a positive way. Let's just ask the question this way. What would it take for God to trust me with more? And here's my promise to you. My promise to you is by the time we're done with this talk this morning, we will have answered this question. We will absolutely answer the question, what would it take for God to trust me with more? What would it take for God to trust you with more? Because if God does have access to everything, if God does love his children, if God does want to invest in his children, there's a lot of opportunity left on the table. And I want to talk about how we can access the opportunity that God has out there that he could invest in us. Now, how we're going to do that is we're gonna go back to the story in the Bible that we've spent the last two weeks looking at. We've said that this story that we're focusing on in U times two is so big that it's gonna take us five weeks just to get through it. But this is a story that Jesus was teaching when he was on earth. And Jesus liked to teach in illustrations. He liked to use a, uh, what we call a parable or just sort of like a, a story. Most of the time it was a made up story. Every once in a while we're wondering whether actually it, 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 this actually happened. But in this case, this is a made up story that Jesus is using to teach uh, a truth about heaven, right? And as a matter of fact, he opens it up by saying the kingdom of heaven can be illustrated by the story of a man going on a long trip. Now, the reason I highlighted that is because every once in a while, somebody will come to me and say, now I'm, I'm reading in the gospels, sometimes it'll be a new believer, and they'll say, I'm reading in the gospels, and I keep seeing the stuff about the kingdom of heaven, the kingdom of God, Jesus is saying this over and over again. So what's all that about? It's super easy to understand. I live in the United States, right? So it's important for me to understand the system of how things work in the United States. I'm under the authority of the government of the United States, and so it's important for me to understand how things work here, right? But the moment I came to faith and trust in Jesus Christ, I made Jesus my king. So now I have dual citizenship. I live both in the United States of America and I live in the kingdom of heaven because, God, because I've said that Jesus is my king. So when you read this in Jesus' teaching, basically he's saying, if God is your king, this is how things work. So you can always just sort of substitute that, right? When you're reading here, again, the kingdom of heaven can be illustrated. So basically what Jesus is saying, if God is your king, if Jesus is your king, this is how stuff works, okay? So here's this guy, he goes on a long trip and he calls together his servants and entrusts his money to them while he was gone. He gave five bags of silver to one, two bags of silver to a second one, and then one bag of silver to the last. Now, quick time out. 
If you've been here with us for the last couple weeks, um, maybe this is, a, this is a little weird because um, we talked about talents of gold, now we're talking about bags of silver. The thing is, Bible translators often don't exactly know um, how this particular uh, currency should be translated. Some, some translators think it means bags of silver, some translators mean, think it means bags of gold, some translators think talents of gold, right? Actually, talents would be my, my preferred thing, but the translation that I'm using here is most helpful for what we're gonna talk about Today. So if you just sort of bear with it, the main thought here is most Bible scholars are going to tell you that for each bag of money or for each talent, we're talking about, generally speaking, somewhere between 800000 and a million dollars today's money, right? So if that helps at all, that's kind of what we're talking about, regardless kind of of the denomination. So he gives five bags of silver to one guy. He gives two bags of silver to his second guy and one bag of silver to the third guy. And the reason that they're different amounts is because he understands that their abilities are not the same, but he wants to make sure that he's maximizing. God is a maximizer. He wants to maximize the abilities that they do have. So he knows that this one guy, if he gives him five bags, he can really do something amazing with these five bags. This guy can do something amazing with two, and this guy should be able to do something amazing with one. So that's the setup. Then he goes on his trip. Now, if you've been here with us, you know the story that the guy with the five bags of silver goes out and really gets working, investing. He's a savvy investor. He's putting money in, into this, into that, in real estate, the market, whatever, and he's watching to see how it does. He's working long hours in uh, the office trying to make sure that this money is bringing back uh, a good profit. Same thing with a guy with two bags of silver. He's working hard, putting in long days, tr- treating this money as though it was his own money to invest um, and, and really working hard to make sure that he gets a return. But the guy with one bag of silver was a piece of work, right? He, he didn't want to work with the money that his master had given him. Uh, he really wanted to go on vacation. It seemed like a really perfect time to go on vacation because his master's on a trip. So instead what he does, he goes and he, he, he digs a big hole, puts the bag of silver in there, covers it up, right? And he just goes on vacay. Actually, the only time I've ever said that word is in these messages this weekend. So <laughs> record it. You won't hear me say it again. Um, but he seriously just, just chills out. Who knows what he was doing? He's playing video games, hanging out with his friends, um, doing whatever he wanted to do. One thing is very clear, he was not working. The whole time his master was gone, he was not working. So then, the Bible tells us, the master comes back after a long time. He's been gone for a long time. He returns from his trip, and he calls them in to give an account of how they had used his money. The servant to whom he had entrusted the five bags of silver came forward with five more and said, Master, you gave me five bags of silver to invest, and I have earned five more. And the master was full of praise. Of course he was. 100% return is a good return. How many of us wish the market was yielding 100%, right? That would be awesome, right? So this is, a, this is a good thing. And so he says, well done, my good and faithful servant. You've been faithful in handling this small amount, so now I will give you many, what? What's the word? More. Now I'll give you more responsibilities, right? So now, um, and he says, let's celebrate together. And then the servant who has the two bags comes in, and he says, master, you gave me two bags of silver to invest, and I have earned two more. And the master said, well done, my good and faithful servant. You've been faithful in handling this small amount, so now I'm gonna give you many more responsibilities. Let's celebrate together. Now, here's what I really want you to think about for just a second. What is the market allowing? Isn't it too much of a coincidence the guy with five bags of silver earns five more? The guy with two bags of silver earns two more. What are we finding out? We're finding out that if you're a good investor, the market is yielding 100%. That is, the, that is the rate of return for good investors. So the guy with five bags of silver gets five more. The guy with two gets two more. The guy with one bag, if he's doing according to his abilities and based off of what the market is returning, how much should he have come in with? He should have come in with one more bag of silver, right? Because that is what the market is doing. But that's not how it worked. 
servant with one bag of silver came in and he said, Master, now here's what's interesting. Anytime you call somebody to account for something and the first thing they say is, um, this is going to require an explanation, that's a bad day, right? You just want them to say that it worked, but he's not, he says, I got to give you an explanation. He says, uh, Master, I knew you were a harsh man, harvesting crops you didn't plant and gathering crops you didn't cultivate. He says, uh, Boss, I know that you didn't read your 360 reviews, but I'm looking to see who my executives are in the room. You know what I'm talking about. I know you didn't read your 360 reviews, but uh, most people who work here don't like you very much. I mean, you're a difficult person to work for. You're a very demanding guy. You probably don't recognize it. You've, you're so type A. You're so type A. And you just run over people. You steamroll people. Nobody wants to work for you. So I'm the only person who's got the guts to tell you. But I'm telling you right now, you're a difficult person to work for. Besides that, you harvest crops you don't plant. You gather crops you don't cultivate. Here's what he was saying. He was saying, you've gone so far up the ladder, you're not doing any work anymore. Now all you expect is for people to come bring you money on a silver platter. And I expected that that was what you were going to expect from me. And I was really worried that somehow I was going to lose your money. So I hid it in the earth. He said, but look, here it is. I mean, it's got dirt all over it. It's a little worse for wear. There's mud dropping off on the floor. But I brought it back. It's all the money that you invested in me. At least I didn't lose anything. Right? Master didn't respond very well. You wicked and lazy servant, if you knew I harvested crops I didn't plant and gathered crops I didn't cultivate, why didn't you at least deposit my money in the bank? I could have gotten some interest on it. He's saying, why didn't you at least put it in a CD? Maybe you didn't get 100% interest, you could have at least gotten four. I mean, and they would have even kept it for you. You didn't even, you didn't even do the most basic thing you could have done. I told you to invest it. You could have, you know, there's a lot of things you could do to invest, but you didn't even do the minimum. I asked you to invest, you didn't even do the minimum investment. You did something completely different, right? Then he ordered, take the money from this servant, give it to the one with the 10 bags of silver. Now, throw this useless servant into outer darkness where there will be weeping and gnashing of teeth. Well, that's a kind of tough ending of the story. But for our purposes today, where we're asking the question, what would it take for God to trust you with more? This story's super helpful because we have three guys, two of them got more, and one of them did it. So you know me, if you've been here and you've heard me speak before, you know what I like to do. I like to analyze things. Okay, so what's the difference between the two guys that got more and the one guy that didn't? And I come up with a nice bulleted list that I can put on my TV that I like to use so much and say, these are the things that we need to do, right? Except in this case, I don't need to do that because Jesus explicitly in so many words tells us what the difference is between the two guys who got more and the one guy who didn't. And as a matter of fact, the way that he tells it to us lets us know this applies to us too. Are you ready for this? This is a God principle that Jesus is gonna teach. To those who use well what they are given, even more will be given. Do you see that? To those who use well what they are given, even more will be given. Who gets more? People who use well what they are given, right? So, what is the principle that Jesus is trying to teach us here? There's a life principle, a God principle. And by the way, anytime you stumble across a God principle in the Bible, it doesn't just apply to your relationship with God, it applies to all of your relationships. So this is what God is trying to teach us, or at least I believe it is, if the, in that passage, to those who use well what they're given, they'll be given more. The Bible's telling us that responsibility motivates trust. Responsibility motivates trust, and it works that way in all relationships. I do a lot of pastoral marriage coaching, and uh, frequently somebody, a couple will come in to see me because there's been a, a betrayal, there's been a trust breakage, there's been um, some sort of unfaithfulness or something like that that's, hap that's happened in the relationship, and almost without fail, they'll use these words with me. We came here to see you so that we can start rebuilding trust, right? Now, there's nothing wrong with that. 
And there are some things that we can do to start trying to rebuild trust. There's some scaffolding we can put in place there. There's no doubt. But do you want to know what really builds trust? The, the core of how trust is built is right there. Responsibility motivates trust. Trust is usually based off a of track record. I trust my wife, Wendy, to be faithful to me. But I, and I trust her more today than I ever have. You know why I trust her more today than I ever have? I have 16 years of history of Wendy being responsible in her relationship with me. So I absolutely feel motivated to trust her, just as Wendy trusts me because she has 16 years of history of responsibility for me in that area. So we trust each other, right, because there's been responsibility that motivates that trust. So as I was processing this question in my mind on this trip home from the conference I was at, I started thinking about this story and how all this relates, you know, that I'm asking, why doesn't God trust me with more? And that's clear, responsibility motivates trust. Well, if you work that formula to its logical conclusion, it's almost as though God is saying, Jonathan, I would trust you more if you were more responsible. I've got got more things I could trust you with, but you're going to have to be more responsible before I can do that. Now, here's the problem with that. The moment that I sort of stumbled on that, I have some major pushback in, in my spirit. And here's what it was. This is maybe the only time I think I've ever really spoken audibly out loud to God. I've never heard God speak to me. This is one time when I was saying something out loud to him. And this is what I said. But I'm a responsible person. I'm a responsible person. Ask my wife. Ask my kids. Ask my siblings. Ask my parents. I'm a, resp- I'm, I'm a firstborn. How many firstborns do I have in the room? Right? Right. So we need to start a recovery group. So, um, <laughs> firstborns, we, we're, we're, we're rule followers. Right? We, we very much care about our system of justice. We want to make sure that things are fair, right? Because you end up with kids that are born after you and your parents don't treat them the same way they treated you and you wonder why are they getting to do this when I didn't get to do this, right? So we develop that sense of justice, you know, and everything, you know, so, and we tend to be a little bit more anxious than our, you know, siblings. I mean, the youngest born is just sort of floating through life on a cloud, you know? And the firstborns were like, no, seriously, this is important, right? So we take everything very seriously. So I think of myself as a very responsible person. And yet, God had some work to do in my heart because God needed me to, to back up for a minute and, and really ask myself the question, wait a minute, am I as responsible as I think? Am I as responsible as I tell myself that I am? Well, in the days ahead, God was going to use an object lesson to teach me something about this, which I love because I love object lessons. Listen, nothing makes Jonathan happier than starting off a sermon with something under a sheet. That's a good day. But it just so happened as I was sort of processing and working through all of this, uh, that it happened to be a day that I needed to go ship something. So I had, you know, something in a nice box that I was taking to the local, you know, drop-off point. Let's see if I can get this out here. As I was processing through all of this, I'm, I'm getting ready to go into that little store that they have there, and when I get there, I fill out a little form. You've done that, right? You fill out a form, this is where I want it to go. Here's the address and all that stuff, and you, you hand the form and the box to the person on the other side of the desk, and you say, here you go. Now, here's the problem that I've had in the past with stewardship. This is a series about stewardship. Um, first of all, I don't use the word very often. I don't say stewardship very often because it's not 1904. Um, Although it is useful if you're very spiritual, if you've been around church a long time, it is useful to help manipulate your spouse's financial decisions. Um, if Wendy's saying, you know, Jonathan, it's been a long time since we've redecorated the living room. I think maybe we should buy some stuff here and we could redecorate the living room. And I say, no, sweetheart, that wouldn't be good stewardship. Let's go look at the big screens. That's a much more spiritual decision to make. <laughs> and, 
And I don't go around telling people I want to be a good steward. I want to be a good steward because if I were to say that, I'm worried they would get the wrong impression. No, Jonathan, you want to be a good flight attendant. That's the correct term now. You want to be a good flight attendant, right? But the reason that I've had a problem with stewardship in the past is because I did grow up in church. When I hear stewardship, I think two things. I think God and money. And I think when people talk about stewardship, that topic is about how God wants me to, to handle my money, how God wants me to spend my money, um, how God wants me to use my money correctly. And there's nothing wrong with that. That's part of stewardship. But it was as though as I'm driving there to go drop off this package, God wanted to teach me something about stewardship in a much broader way. And it was as though God said to me, Jonathan, when you take that box and you hand it over to the person across the counter, that's stewardship. That's stewardship. Because you're taking that box and you hand it to this person, you're saying, this is actually mine. I want you to take good care of it and please do with it what I asked you to do. That's stewardship. See, in our lives, God has put a lot of things in our hands. Relationships, opportunities, resources, And when he does that, he puts it in our hands and he says, technically this is mine. But I want you to take good care of it and I want you to do what I asked you to do with it, right? Now if we do that, then God wants to invest more. God wants to steward more. He wants us to to, to take more from him that we can continue to participate with him in what he's doing in this planet. But when we don't do what he's asked us to do, it really takes away some of his ability to keep handing stuff over to us. So I told you, when I started kind of thinking about this topic, first thing that came to my mind was, but I'm a responsible person. Then I had to ask myself, do I hold myself to the same bar of responsibility? Do I have the same standard of responsibility for myself that I have for, say, whatever, that I won't use the name, but the company that I was going to ship that package with? So I'm in my little Volkswagen, I take out a piece of paper, and I draw out something that I called the responsibility test. Now, what I was doing up front here is I'm just writing the the things that I expect from a company if I'm going to ship a package with them, right? But it's funny how quickly they began to align both with our story and with what I think God was trying to teach me. So if you're taking notes, there's, there's three things that I thought of that are really important to me that really sort of become the grid through which I would determine whether or not I would ship with a company or not. Here's the first one. The first one is, can that person that I'm handing that package to, can they respect the declared value of what's in it, right? Those of you who ship packages a lot, who gets to determine what the value of this package is? I do, right? Because I packed it. I get to tell them what it's worth, and I will only ship with them if they will accept the value that I told them that it's worth. About a year earlier, I'd been shipping something off at the same place, and there was an elderly lady in front of me in line. She was very extroverted uh, and, and very uh, gregarious. Uh, she had a lot to say. Um, so we were talking, and she's getting ready to drop off this box. And uh, so when she gets to the guy and hands the box over, this guy's maybe 20, 21 years old, um, and he looks at her and he says, what's the value of what's in the box? Well, and then she started just giving us way more information than everybody needed, but she started talking about how that it was a quilt that was inside the box. Is there such a thing as an antique quilt? 
Yeah, okay, good. Because I was going to call it an old quilt for this message, but that sounds so insulting, right? So it was an antique quilt, and it, was, it had been passed down through generations in her family, and now she was sending it to her daughter in California. And so he said, well, we need to put a dollar value on it. What, what, what dollar value should we put down on the form? And she said, $500. And this guy's eyes just get hugely you know, wide open, and it dawned on me, this guy has probably, much like me, never been inducted into the culture of quilting, right? Um, because it was almost as though he was, are, are you okay, ma'am? Are, are, are you all right? $500, you know? Um, because I could see this sort of the wheels turning in his head. I could go to Walmart and buy a quilt for 20 bucks, you know? Um, and yet, he interestingly wrote down $500 on there. Why? Because the person who packs the box gets to determine how much it's worth. Interestingly, as he went and took that box and put it in a, a bin, so he had sort of turned away from us, she looked at me and she said, he probably doesn't realize that quilts like this routinely go for over $1,000, right? What's she saying? She's saying, I know he doesn't get it, but, but I'm just asking him to steward this for me. I get how much it's worth. I just need him to go along with it. I need him to recognize that I know what I'm talking about, that I know what I'm doing. It's worth that, right? But I have to ask myself, how many packages has God put in my hands and said, Jonathan, it's worth a lot. And yet my temptation is to sort of use my own judgment to figure out, eh, man, I don't think it's worth all that much. I'm certainly not going to orchestrate my life around how much, you know, I, I, don't think it's, I don't think it's that important, right? I mean, imagine what it'd be like if the guy behind the counter said, well, you know what, you can buy a quilt at Walmart for, you know, I don't know, 30, 40 bucks, and this one's used. I'm just going to write $10 down here, right? Let's just do that. Let's just write $10 down. Do you think the lady would have shipped the package? I don't think so, right? She's never going to come back there ever again. And yet I've done that with God. I've said, God, I, I don't think it's really worth what, you, what you're telling me it's worth, so I'm just going to kind of treat it like it's worth what I think it's worth, right? The first step in responsibility is, can I respect the declared value? We'll talk more about that in a second. So here's the second one, and this one is really important because this is the most basic expectation I have of anybody that I would ship a package with, right? Here it is. And that is, can I follow directions, right? I want that little form. I want them to give me that form, and I want to fill it out. I want to put an address down on there. Why? Because I want to tell them what to do with this box. That's part of the deal. And it is my basic expectation that they will take this box where that piece of paper says. It is my basic expectation that they will follow my directions. What would it be like if I said, well, here, I want to fill out one of those forms, and they're like, ah, you don't need one of those. We only treat those like suggestion cards anyway. We generally just take stuff wherever we feel like it. Whatever the day, you know, we try to save fuel. It's so much more fuel efficient to just dump everything off in one location than it is to go to all these different places and drop packages off. You know, we just kind of go with the flow. Whatever we feel, that's kind of what we do. Well, that would be absurd. Nobody would ever ship with them if that was the case. The funny thing is, though, how many times have I done that with God? How many times has God told me this is very important and given me instructions and then I devalue it and I don't follow the instructions. Speaking of the value thing, I'm going to go back to that for just a second because I meant to say something and it was very important and I accidentally skipped past it. When I talked about accepting the declared value, I want you to think about something about this master because it's very, very important in the story and it's true of God. When that master gave the one guy five bags of silver, that wasn't, the value to him wasn't just five bags of silver. He saw the value of what it would become over the length of time that he was gone. When he looked at the five bags of silver, he saw 10. Because he knew over the period of time he was gone, it could turn into 10. When he looked at the two bags of silver, he saw four. Because he knew over the period of time he was gone, it had the potential to become four. 
See, the, the biggest mistake that the guy with the one bag of silver made was he looked at it and all he saw was one bag of silver. He didn't see the potential of what it could be, so what he did was he buried it and he felt okay about it. At least I didn't lose the one bag of silver. See, the thing that I'm most scared about in my life is that I will look at something for what I think it is now rather than what God knows it could be eventually. Because that's how God values things. So God puts that in my life and says, no, I, I see what it could be and I need you to get on board with that. I'm giving you instructions. I need you to follow them. I need you to do specifically what I'm asking you to do, right? Those two things are, are enough for me to start backing off and say, okay, God, maybe I'm not as responsible as I told you I was a minute ago. Because maybe I'm not doing so well in those areas. But this third one, man, it really got a hold of me. Because the third thing, and this is a biggie for me, third thing is, can this person that I'm handing this box to take responsibility if they mess up? If they mess this up, will they take ownership of their mistake? Right? Now, I worked at another church before I came to New Spring. For, for years before I served on this staff, I served at the staff of Edmonds First Baptist Church in Edmond, Oklahoma, just on the north side there of Oklahoma City. And the office that I had um, was right outside the little hallway where the different shippers would you know, leave packages when they were bringing them. Um, and I was expecting, hello, come back this way, there we go. I was expecting a very important package. It had a laptop in it that was coming for our broadcast ministry. Um, so I was definitely, had my ears out for them coming and bringing this package. And I heard them deliver it. But what I mean by that is not that I heard the delivery truck or that I heard the guy come in and say, hey, here are the packages that are being shipped here. When I heard the package arrive, this is what it sounded like. Now, this was like five or six feet outside of my office. Now, I don't think this guy understood that there was an office behind the door that I was at, but I come out and he starts to look a little freaked out because now somebody heard what just happened, you know? And I'm looking at the box and I look up at him, hoping for an explanation. He doesn't say anything. So I look back down at the box and I look back up at him. He still doesn't say anything. So then I give him a few of these, like, you know? That's nonverbal for what in the world, you know? What just happened with this? And he picked it up and he said, isn't it a shame when stuff's improperly packaged like this? Improperly packaged? I mean, it just sounded like it got drop kicked down the hall. You know? And I thought to myself, this is not a reliable carrier. Not if they can't take responsibility for their mistakes. See, I wasn't mad because this happened, because you know there's a risk of that. You ship something cross-country, you know that you know, some, something bad could happen to it. That's just part of the deal. I wasn't mad until he turned it around and blamed it on somebody else. I had to ask myself. I said I was a responsible person. God, I'm a responsible person. But as though now I have to ask myself the question, how good, did I, how good am I at taking responsibility when I mangle up the box that God put in my hands. See, God knows there's a, there's a possibility I may mess up, and there's not a human being on the face of the planet that's perfect. Every one of us is gonna mess up somehow with a box that God puts in our hands. But the question is, can I own up to my mistake? Can I stand before God and say, I did this, and I feel really bad about it, and I wish that I hadn't done it, and I'm gonna do better in the future? Can I be honest and stand before God and agree with him that this is not what the original intent was? This is not what the goal was. I'll tell you, I, I mentioned before that I do a lot of pastoral life 
counseling, coaching, whatever you want to call it. Um, and just in the last eight or nine years that I've been doing that kind of work, I've noticed that our culture has become so much more of a blame culture. I mean, we're so defensive. I mean, my friend Les Parrott says that we develop now, we've developed defensiveness as our default. You know, somebody says, hey, have you seen my car keys? Well, I didn't, I didn't do anything with them. You know, everything's defensive. And in, de- in, in becoming defensive, we place the blame on somebody else. No, it's not my fault, it's your fault. I talk to people in my office, this isn't always the case, but sometimes I'll have a couple in my office, and it's as though on the road to taking responsibility for something, we take this horrible detour, right? I, I, you know, I feel really bad that I did this, but if you understood the pressure I'm at on, uh, that I'm under at work, if you understood the people that I have to deal with, if you understand, I mean, I can, be, I can be just as bad at that, you know? I can not do something right in my life, and God can say, Jonathan, hey, what's up with that? And you know, I just pull at Adam, that woman that you gave me. Wendy's fault. It's my kid's fault. Stress, it's stress's fault. You know what the problem with that is? Seriously, if you can sort of tie in with me right now. The problem with doing that is that I lose touch with reality. See, the bottom line is, when I mess up the package, that's reality. When I redirect it towards somebody else's fault, I've just checked out from reality, and I've now gone into fantasy land. I've now gone into the fantasy that I don't cause problems, that I don't make things uh, worse sometimes, that I don't do things that hurt people, that I don't make mistakes, right? And even though logically, if you were to ask me, do you do those things, I'd say, oh yeah, sure, I do those things. But in my mind, I've totally vacated the question of whether or not I'm responsible for things. And that is the fantasy land that, uh, that our world is living in today. And Christians, more than anybody, we need to be ready to live in reality and take responsibility for what happens when God places a package in our hands. Right? So, as a recap, the question is, can I do that? Can I take responsibility when I mess up? By the way, if you want to see how this ties in with the story, just check this out. Master, now I want you to watch this guy with the one bag of silver, and I want you to look at how often he says, you. Look for the eyes, you won't find many. You were a harsh man harvesting crops you didn't plant and gathering crops you didn't cultivate. You know what the earmark of responsibility is? It's an I conversation. I messed this up. I should have handled this better. I didn't do the right thing. That's what the voice of responsibility sounds like, right? So, I told God, I'm responsible, I'm responsible. You can trust me with whatever you want because I'm one of the most responsible people I know, right? Now I've got to actually use this grid that we've created. And because I'm a psychology guy and I like Likert scales and all that kind of stuff, I do one to 10. I'm gonna score this on one to 10 and yes, this is what my wife has to put up with. Um, I'm gonna ask myself, am I responsible? On a scale of one to 10, how well am I doing at valuing what God has invested in me? How well am I doing in whatever area of my life at, at accepting the value that God places on something, right? Second thing. Scale of one to 10, how well am I doing at following the directions? Now, a caveat here. If you read the Bible, if, you know, especially if you're a new believer and you look in the Bible, there's a lot of pages there, a lot of ink on the page. It can be a little intimidating, a lot of instructions, right? Um, and so sometimes the fact that there are so many instructions, we can kind of use an ex- as an excuse to say, but God, it's so overwhelming. There's so much here for me to follow and I, I don't know how to follow it all at once, right? What, you need, what I think the message of the Bible is from, from cover to cover is we need to do what we understand God wants us to do. 
when I try to vacate that, when I try to use that off-ramp with God, but God, there's so many instructions, I don't know how to follow them all, it's almost as though God comes back to me and says, well, let's just start with love your neighbor like yourself. Let's start there. How are we doing with that? Scale of one to 10, right? And then the third, scale of one to 10, how well am I doing at owning up to my mistakes? Once I scaled that out, I'd have to say, well, I'm definitely not a 10 across the board. As a matter of fact, I'm not even close to a 10 in these things. So I've got a lot of work to do. And as a matter of fact, chances are you're, you're like me as far as that's concerned. Chances are in some areas of your life you've got, you've got some work to do. So what I would like to do is I would like to ask you right now to do this exercise with me. I'd like you to think about one area in your life where you feel like you're up at, you, you've hit the ceiling and you're not going any farther past where you're at right now, but you wish God would trust you with more. It could be a relationship, it could be a certain resource, it could be an opportunity, but somewhere in your life, and this is unique to you, there's something in your life that you wish God would trust you with more and he hasn't yet, right? And I just want you to think about how you're gonna workshop these three things with that area of your life. Now, since we can't have a dialogue, you and I, about the specific things in your life, could I give you a few examples? And these would just, we'll just pull these from my life, just a few examples of some ways that I could workshop this for myself. Um, what about just my, let's just think about my marriage, right? What if I wanted God to trust me uh, with more in terms of my marriage? I feel like, um, you know, God, I, I want you to take us to a new level of intimacy. I want you to take us to a new level of closeness, a, two, a, a new level of happiness in our relationship. Well, if that was my goal, then I would, first of all, have to think about how does God uh, what, what value does God put on our marriage? And what value does God put on Wendy? Those two things are very important. We'll talk about that in just a second. And then I would have to think about what, what do I do to follow directions? Well, let's just check that out. This is in First Peter. This is directly to husbands. This is specifically to me. In the same way, you husbands must give honor to your wives, right? This is another way of saying cherish your wife, right? She needs to know that nobody is a bigger person on your radar screen than she is, right? Well, how am I doing at that? Not so well sometimes, right? Um, treat your wife with understanding as you live together. Well, this one is even tougher because the male brain and the female brain, I mean, you understand the way the male species is. Sometimes when Wendy's trying to talk to me and explain things, I sort of glaze over, right? Or the TV is in the way, or there's other things that are distracting me, right? I'm playing quick draw with my phone every time it vibrates, you know? Um, how am I doing at understanding my wife as we live together? She may be weaker than you are, and ladies don't take offense to this, in the Greek it means her, her bodily frame may be smaller than yours, so really what Paul is saying is a husband could use his size to try to intimidate his wife, but the scripture is saying he better not do that because she is your equal partner. Notice the declared value. She is your equal partner in God's gift of new life. Jonathan, regardless of what you happen to think today in this moment about Wendy's value, I just want you to know that as much as I value you as a person, Jonathan, I value Wendy just as much. Right? Treat her as you should so your prayers will not be hindered. So if I feel like I'm not connecting with God and there's a glass ceiling there and I'm just not really getting my prayers through, it may not be my wife's fault, it may not be my kid's fault, it may not be how much stress I'm under's fault, maybe may none of those things. It actually may be that in my marriage I've let the box get a little crumpled and crinkled and I'm not taking responsibility for it. At some, time, at some point I've got to step back and say, it's me. I haven't been as understanding as I should be. I haven't treated Wendy the way I should all the time. I have not um, lived with her in an understanding way those things are the things I need to take responsibility for, and now I'm gonna work on following directions. So that'd be a way I could work on that. Let's try something else. What about parenting? Because the Bible says children are a heritage, and this word actually means an inheritance from the Lord. So they're definitely an investment. It's definitely a stewardship, and beyond that, it's a special stewardship because it's an inheritance. All right, well, what are the instructions I'm supposed to follow as a dad? 
Well, this is an instruction specifically for dads. Do not provoke your children to anger by the way you treat them. I might have a little work to do on that sometimes, right? Rather, bring them up with the discipline and instruction that comes from the Lord. Now, we've talked about this in parenting series before, so just give it to you in capsule. But we've talked before about the fact that you can't bring your kids up if you are not up. So many of us, we want to push our kids up to God, right? Because we're not close to God, but we want them to be. So we try to give them a shove. We're trying to shove them up to God. But the Bible says you can't shove them up. You can only bring them up. And you can only bring them up if you are up. How good am I doing at that? Well, I've got some work to do. Or how about money? How's that for a tense topic, right? Paul is talking to young pastor Timothy to tell him what to tell people about their money. He said this, teach those who are rich in this world not to be proud and not to trust in their money, which is so unreliable. Their trust should be in God who richly gives us all we need for our enjoyment. Tell them, now here are the instructions, tell them to use their money to do good. How am I doing on that? They should be rich in good works and generous to those in need, always being ready to share with others. How good am I at being somebody who shares? By doing this, they will be storing up their treasure as a good foundation for the future so that they may experience true life. That's the outcome. Wow, God, I don't feel like I'm experiencing true life. I don't feel like I'm really getting the enjoyment out of life that I'm supposed to get. Well, then I need to step back and ask myself, am I, am I somebody who's always ready to share with others? Am I somebody who's using my resources that God has put in my life to do good? Do you see what I'm saying? There, there's, there's very special instructions that God gives us with the packages that he puts in our life, but we do have to follow the instructions, Right? So, this is the most fun part of the entire talk, because this is the part where I get to give homework, right? I almost never do that, but giving homework is so much fun, right? So I told you that I wanted you to think about one area of your life where you wish God would trust you with more. This is my challenge to you. I want you to spend the next seven days focused on just that one area of your life. Really hone in on it. Just seven days on this one area of your life, and I want you to think about what can you do to value it the way that God values it, what can you do to follow the instructions that you know and understand about that, and then what can you do to take responsibility. Now, here's, here's the thing. My dare to you is that if you can move the needle in all three of those areas, God will trust you with more than he has so far, right? Now, circling back to what I talked about at the beginning of this talk, I, I just cannot stand it when preachers make promises that God is not going to deliver on. Right? So for me to say, if you can move the needle in these three areas, God is going to trust you with more, <clears throat> I would expect you to expect me to back it up. And that's exactly what I'm going to do right now. So we'll go to the book of Malachi. Here, God is talking about finances. But this, is, this works great for stewardship in general. Bring all the tithes into the storehouse so there will be enough food in my temple. If you do, says the Lord of heaven's armies, I will open the windows of heaven for you. I'll pour out a blessing so great you won't have enough room to take it in. That sounds like more to me. And then he says this, try it. Put me to the test. I don't know of anywhere else in the Bible where you're going to see a double dare from the God of the universe. You know, he's saying, seriously, just try it. See if it doesn't work out that way. So this isn't Jonathan saying, if you can move the needle in these three areas, then God is gonna trust more in you. This is God saying, would you please just try this? Try, try this, because if you can take that, that, that stewardship, if you can take that package that I'm trying to put in your hands, and if you can really be so responsible with it that I know that I now have an open window to invest more in you, I'm gonna do it, because he wants to. Right? See, the thing about it is, God is trying to do something in this planet. He has a purpose. 
when I showed up at that shipping office, I wasn't just sending this box just because it was a fun thing to do on a Friday. I was shipping it because I had a reason for shipping it. I had a purpose. God isn't just giving you things, resources, opportunities in your life just because, just, you know, on a whim he's doing that. He's doing it because he has a purpose in this world. He's at work in this world, and he wants you to partner with him. But responsibility is what motivates trust. So each of us have some work to do on this. There's nobody who's completely irresponsible and nobody who's completely responsible. We're all somewhere on a sliding scale here, but we all have some work we could do. So what are you gonna do this week to motivate God to trust you? One area, seven days, give it a shot. Try it, see what happens. Father, thank you so much for this wonderful room of people. Thank you that we've gotten to talk about the investments that you place in our lives. Please help us to be responsible so that you can bless us more and so that you can help us to be a part of what you're doing in this planet. We pray this in Jesus' name. Thank you. Amen. Thanks so much for being here this week. We'll see you next week.